Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be covering sections 60, 61, and 62. These revelations are centered around some of the brethren coming home to Ohio out of Jackson County, Missouri. To give you a little bit of context, it's August, it's hot, it's 1831, the church is just over a year old. They've dedicated the land for the city of the central place of Zion, and the missionaries are going to go back to Ohio, and they have some questions, and they want to know, you know, how should we go back? What should we do? Is there some direction that the Lord would like to give us? And these are some of the core missionaries at the beginning of this dispensation. And so there's so many things going on historically along the river, and If you've ever wondered what's going on in section 61 with the destroyer riding upon the waters, because that's a very strange thing, the destroyer riding upon the waters. Like, who is the destroyer? It's become tradition in the church to quote section 61 as to why missionaries can't go swimming. Right. That Satan has power over the waters. And so a lot of tradition is being dealt with this week in these sections. And we'll deal with all of that when we get to section 61. Hang on. We're going to get there. We're going to give you some things to look at. Yes. And before we jump into how they return from Jackson County to Ohio, I want to look at big picture messages for our day, for you and I, because the Lord teaches some principles here that are hard to balance. And that word is crucial that we understand, balance. Joseph Smith made the comment that by proving contraries, we can discover truth. And there are numerous times in which we have to balance two contraries, often like justice and mercy. But the two contraries that I want to talk about here have to do with revelation and prayer and getting answers from Heavenly Father. Because one thought that's going to come up numerous times in the next three sections is the Lord's going to say, it doesn't matter to me. It mattereth not. Let me just give you that list. Section 60, verse 5. He says, you go home as seemeth you good, it mattereth not unto me. In section 61, verse 22, he says, it mattereth not unto me. Then again in section 62, he says, as seemeth you good, it mattereth not unto me. In verse 7 of section 62, hey, if you want, you can go on horses or mules or chariots, whatever, it mattereth not. Now, we got to be careful. He's not saying, I don't care. I don't care about you. I don't care about the situation. What he's saying is, it mattereth not in this circumstance if you choose A or B. Now, maybe the kind of the definitive statement is in section 80, which is way down the road. But if you want to jump there, go to section 80, because he kind of gives, why does it mattereth not? Verse 3, wherefore go ye and preach my gospel, whether to the north or to the south, or to the east or to the west, it mattereth not, for ye cannot go amiss. Now that's a critical doctrine that we need to understand. That when it doesn't matter because we can't fail, we can't ruin our salvation, we can't do something wrong, 
The Lord quite often says, you choose, it mattereth not to me. But the contrary is also true. Now go back to section 61 and see kind of the opposite, where it does matter. Back in section 61, verse 28, he says, Let him do as the Spirit of the living God commandeth him, whether on the land or upon the waters, as it remaineth with me to do hereafter. And then in verse 33, he says, Now concerning the residue, let them journey and declare the word among the congregations of the wicked, inasmuch as it is given. Now, those are two contradictory messages. Sometimes the Lord says, I will tell you exactly what to do. And other times he says, it mattereth not. So let's jump to an example of this in the Book of Mormon. Do you remember when the brother of Jared has made barges tight like a dish? And he has two main problems he takes to the Lord. Problem number one is that because they're tight like a dish, air cannot penetrate. The second problem is light cannot get in. So he takes those two problems to the Lord. Now pause and think about the ramifications of those two problems. Air and light, are they of equal danger? They are not. If they do not solve the air problem, they die. Those barges become coffins, and they will die inside them if they don't solve the air. Worst case scenario with the light, they just have to go in darkness, but that won't, that is not life-threatening. It's inconvenient, but not life-threatening. So when it comes to the life-threatening challenge, so the brother of Jared goes up to the mountain and says, we can't breathe. And the Lord comes back and is very specific in his answers. Kind of like what we just read in section 61, as it is given unto you. When the danger is high, you can expect the Lord to be very specific in his instructions. Because the danger is high. You can't mess this up. Someone's going to get hurt if you don't make the right decision. This time it does matter what you choose. So be open to air situations where the danger is high and the Lord is very specific in his answers. Now, sometimes that frustrates us. Look, for example, at the brother of Jared. The Lord comes back and says, if you want to solve the air problem, drill a hole in the top and the bottom of the boat. Now, I will be honest, my first instinct would have been to criticize the Lord and to question his instructions. You want me to solve the air problem by putting a hole in the bottom of my boat? That doesn't make sense to me, and I might not do it because it doesn't make sense. But I guarantee as soon as the bottom of the boat became the top of the boat, which frequently happened, I think the brother of Jared would very quickly understand in that moment the importance of having followed to the T. So the frustration in air situations is we get very detailed instructions that we occasionally may not understand. Think back upon the times in your life when you have been in an air situation. And the instructions from the Lord was very quick and very poignant and very specific. Maybe that was the university you were to attend or a career choice or something, a house you were to buy. 
I am very grateful that a very brilliant man walked into a home he didn't really care for, but got a very distinct impression, you must buy this home. The Lord's instructions were very specific. Well, it just so happens that because he bought that home, it placed his daughter in the same ward as a certain return missionary from Mexico City, and that is how I met my wife. Because her father felt a distinct impression to buy a home and didn't understand that. It wasn't anywhere near his workplace. It wasn't anywhere near any family. It didn't make sense to him at the moment why he should buy that home. But the impression was strong. And the Lord was saying, this is important. You can't mess this up. These two are going to meet. It's in your daughter's best interest to buy this house right now. Now, contrast that with what happens next. As soon as the Lord gives the very detailed instructions about solving the air problem, the brother of Jared comes back up to the mountain and says, okay, now what about the light? And I'm positive he expected the Lord to do the same thing and be very specific in his answers. And that is not what he got. And sometimes we are shocked in our prayers when the Lord doesn't answer them and instead simply says, it mattereth not. He turns around to the brother of Jared and this time says, what do you want me to do? You can't have windows, you can't have fire. So what do you want me to do? He put this on the brother of Jared. Now, why? I would suggest going back to section 80, you cannot go amiss. When the danger is not high and either choice would be just fine, the Lord quite often says, I'm not going to tell you what to do. This one's on you. And if you understand that concept, you can look now back on your life and see time periods where you prayed and prayed for an air-like answer, and it didn't come. And most likely the reason it didn't come is because you were in a light situation. And the Lord was saying, what do you choose? I remember speaking to one student I taught who was praying very, very earnestly. Her family situation was changing, and she had to make a decision, A or B, and it was a very serious decision. She assumed because of the seriousness of the decision that clearly the Lord would have an opinion. And she prayed and prayed and prayed and got no answer. And she came to me in frustration saying, I guess I don't understand prayer. And we talked and I smiled and pointed out that most likely the reason the Lord was silent was because she was more than capable of making this decision on her own and that she couldn't go amiss. Either decision, A or B, would be in harmony with God's purposes for her. It's like the Lord says in these sections, it doesn't matter. It mattereth not. It won't ruin the kingdom of God, nor your place in it, nor the Lord's plans for you if you choose A or B. So this one's on you. And we need to understand the difference between a light situation and an air situation. 
On the same trip, the Lord's going to say to some people, it mattereth not. But to other people, he is very clear and says, look, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do, and you need to do as it's given unto you. Because the danger was not the same in those two situations. So as you seek the Lord's help in your life, recognize when you are in a it mattereth not type situation. Know when the Lord is stepping back and have the courage to step up and make the decision. This one is on you. But also recognize when the Lord says, do exactly as it's given unto you. This one's dangerous. And this one you need to listen because someone's going to get hurt if you don't. The second contrary I want to point out in this week's sections begins in section 61. As they're traveling back from Missouri to Ohio, the Lord says in verse 3, It is not needful for this whole company of elders to be moving swiftly upon the waters while the inhabitants of either side are perishing in unbelief. In other words, I know you're rushing home to probably family or business or some circumstance, but sometimes you have to leave the 90 and 9 and go after the 1. Sometimes you need to pause in what you were doing and go after that one person over there. So don't rush home. It doesn't make sense for you to rush home when the people on both sides of the river need to hear your message. But then contrast that to what he says at the very end of the same section. Verse 32, specifically to Joseph and Sidney and Oliver, he says, you need to get home quickly. Why? Verse 32, from thence let them journey for the congregations of their brethren. For their labors even now are wanted more abundantly among them than among the congregations of the wicked. So to one group of people, he says, don't go home so quickly. Go spread the gospel out on the sides of the river you're passing down. But to Joseph Smith, he says, ignore the people on the sides of the river and get home quickly. Because they need you more than the people on the sides of the river need you. In other words, sometimes you leave the 90 and 9 and go after the 1. And sometimes you have to let the 1 go and save the 90 and 9. So there's members of the church back home, and there's non-members along the way. To one group, he says, leave the members, go after the non-members. To another group, he says, leave the non-members and go after the member. Now, do you see the contrary? In your church calling, sometimes the Lord is going to prompt you to leave the 90 and 9 and go after the 1. Other times the Lord's going to say, let the 1 go. You've got to save the 90 and 9. And people would read that and say, that's a contradictory message. What's the Lord doing? Why can't he make up his mind? And the reality is the Lord governs each situation differently. And we have to be open to the fact that we might be in a different situation. 
which is why we absolutely have to be guided by personal revelation. He has to be able to tell us that in this circumstance, you're in air, not light, or you're in light and not air, or in this circumstance, you need to leave the 90 and 9. You need to not do what you're comfortable doing and do what you're uncomfortable doing. Or maybe it's a reversal, and he says, look, go back to the 90 and 9. They're suffering more than the one. This church, our lives, each one of us are in different circumstances. And the God of heaven is an individual God who will teach each one of us to respond appropriately in the circumstances we find ourselves. I love this scripture in the Book of Mormon in Alma chapter 48. We find this intriguing verse. Alma chapter 48, I'm going to read 15 and 16. And this was their faith that by so doing, God would prosper them in the land. Or in other words, if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land, yea, warn them to flee or prepare them for war according to their danger. And also that God would make it known unto them whether they should go to defend themselves against their enemies. And by so doing, the Lord would deliver them. And this was the faith of Moroni, and his heart did glory in it, not in the shedding of blood, but in doing good in preserving his people. In other words, the Lord prospers us according to the situation we're in, and not all of us are in the, the same situation. I just love, Mike, that those two contraries illustrate so beautifully in this week's reading. The whole time you were talking, I was thinking about times in my life where I've been in those circumstances, and it's made me realize this is a process of learning. Like, we're not going to get it all right every time, especially from the beginning. And I think that as we reflect back on our life and think about some decisions, we can see times where we really had a strong impression. For my life, a lot of times, it's just kind of a like that general impression, hey, you're going the right direction. And I think that in this circumstance, as you mentioned, there's 11 of these guys together, and Joseph and Oliver are told, hey, get back to Ohio. But others are told to preach by the way, and one of the guys that disobeys this is Ezra Booth. He, he's had enough of the heat, I think, and, and the, all the, the problems on the, on the water, and he makes a beeline right for Ohio. And in that disobedience, he may have missed some opportunities to feel the Spirit ratify the message that they have. And so I just think about this a lot. And also, I think this applies so much to missionaries. When you're a missionary, there are so many times where the Lord says, no, you got this. And it's just kind of this general instruction. But other times it's so specific. And the whole time you were talking about the danger being high and the specificity of instruction, I was thinking about how many hours have I spent with my children talking about the rules of the road and driving I've spent way more time talking about that than I have math. Think about it. If they get the rules of the road wrong, right. the consequences are much more serious than if they get math wrong. When the danger is high, that's a really good analogy to, to bring up. And I like that you brought up missionary work because I deal with a lot of females contemplating whether or not they should go on a mission. Many of them are in an air situation where the Lord is really being prescriptive and saying, you need to serve a mission. And he's pushing. 
and he's really being specific, while others are in a light situation, and they're wondering, should I serve a mission? And they're getting nothing. They're getting no answers. And they're frustrated sometimes that they're not getting answers. And I think the situation is that the Lord is saying, look, go on a mission would be great. Stay home would be great. In your specific circumstances, you cannot go amiss. So we see this in so many different ways in our lives, but I think it's a lesson we need to learn. It's, it's a contrary we, we have to balance. When are you in light? When are you in error? But now let's jump back to the the individual sections. We've got three wonderful sections, 60, 61, and 62. Let's jump back to section 60. So 60 and 61 really are, they're very similar in the sense of location and time. So they're both on the Missouri River at this place called McElwain's Bend. And we've linked in the show notes some stuff where you can go and look at other websites and get an idea of what it's like. One of the things that I think is important to understand is that they've been on the river for a couple of days. It's hot. I can only imagine the humidity. And there's this one point where the canoe in which Joseph and Sidney Rigdon were riding in, it hit this tree. There's all these trees in the river, and they're called sawyers. Sawyers are these big trees or logs that are just bobbing around in the river. And a lot of steamboats that were going up and down the river at this time get wrecked and does all kinds of damage to these boats. Well, in this canoe that Joseph and Sidney are in, it gets trapped in this tree. And from the historical sources, we read that they almost drowned. Now, I don't have all the details. This is from Lyndon Cook's account about Joseph Smith, but they call this a tragedy. And in this party of 11, because of the circumstance with the with the canoe getting flipped, they actually pause and they camp. And it's during this time that they get these revelations. And so 60 and 61, are kind, that's kind of the context of what's happening. But then to throw in a little bit more, some of the brethren are contending with themselves. They're kind of ornery. Now, This isn't hard for me to imagine if you've ever been on scout camp for a long time. Now, typically when I go with the scouts, I typically like joke around with them and stuff. At least I try. But frankly, I'm not a camper. And so in the the words of a famous comedian, whenever somebody's upset, they say, well, he's not a happy camper. (laughs) Why do they use that metaphor? Why do they use that description? I think part of it has to do with it's kind of hard. It's kind of rough. And so I can only imagine what that would have been like. But some of them are fired up. And one of them is Ezra Booth. Ezra Booth was contending with the brethren, and he actually later left the church and wrote some negative things about the church. Uh, They're published, and so we cite those in the show notes, and you can go and read those. Yep. Now, I want to bring up last week's podcast about enduring tribulation well. Remember, if you feel wronged and get wroth, and then you fight against, or you can humble yourselves, seek the Lord, and see things— In the very next week's Come Follow Me, we see a classic example of someone who travels with Joseph Smith to Jackson County, sees independence, is taught this glamorous vision of Zion, and yet feels wronged, gets wroth, and is going to fight against the church. Classic illustration. So Ezra Booth is one of those members of the church that illustrates that we can be unfaithful in tribulation. So Ezra Booth 
did eventually write a, a treatise against the church called Mormonism Unveiled. And essentially in this circumstance, he just says, these are the leaders of the church and the only church on the earth the Lord beholds with approbation. And his point was, man, if this is the true church, I can't believe they're fighting. And so once again, he sees the imperfections in these brethren as they're traveling on the river. And he kind of uses that to basically cast shade on the church. Now, if you think about it, we're in no different of a circumstance. We all interact with people of all different kinds of faiths. And there are people that are watching you. And they're going to judge the church based on what they hear you say or how you act. And so I remember Ezra Booth because I think I don't want to be the cause for making more Ezra Booths. I don't want to be that excuse that they're going to have to go ahead and just throw shade on the church and and castigate us publicly. And and later, because he writes this stuff, it actually harms the missionary work. And so the Lord's going to call Joseph and Sidney to kind of straighten this stuff out. But like I said, he does, he, he goes, he leaves, he goes back to Ohio, and he eventually uh, publishes some things in the Ohio Star. And unfortunately, he even loses his faith in in Jesus Christ and becomes an agnostic. Now, an an agnostic is someone who isn't necessarily saying there is no God. They're just saying that they don't know. And so it's unfortunate. But then what's interesting about church history is you see all kinds of different people. You see the Ezra Booths who leave and go against the church. And then you see others that stand right with Joseph. And so this is coming out of these revelations. Now, also in section 60, verse 13, the Lord says that they're not to idle away their time. And there's there's a great quote or, or a common cliche that goes something like this, the Lord cannot steer a parked car. And so this is another invitation, not only for missionaries, but for all of us to get about doing the Lord's business. And a lot of times it's like what Bryce said, just do something. And as you're in the middle of doing it while you're acting, the Lord will give you more direction. And I really do believe that. I remember one time my mission president said, you're going to know more about the Savior and you're going to do much more missionary work outside your apartment than praying in your closet. And so if you don't have stuff to do, just go outside and talk to people. And that's why I tell my boys when they go on a mission, I say, if you don't have an appointment, just go outside, talk to people. And as you do, good things will happen. I do also want to make a note of a statement that the Lord's going to use in section 60. And it's in verse 13. It talks about preaching the gospel. And then the Lord uses this phrase, among the congregations of the wicked. If you go to section 61, he says it again in verse 33. He says it also in verse 30 and 32. And that's tough. That's a, that's a tough phrase. These people are all called wicked. That's why I'm very grateful that the Lord tempered that in section 62. It says that they're to go two by two, as seemeth you good, it mattereth not, only be faithful. And then it says, and declare glad tidings to the inhabitants of the earth or among the congregations of the wicked. And in the historical record, this is what we read. At the time of this revelation, Cincinnati was only a village, yet it was like other Western towns, such as Independence, the gathering place of many who had been forced to flee from the larger cities because of the violation of the law. In all of these border towns, in that day, wickedness prevailed to a great extent. 
And so that's kind of the context of that of those phrases. I mean, if you're reading section 60, 61, 62, and over and over again, people refer to as the congregations of the wicked, it can sound kind of harsh. That's why I'm very grateful that the Lord tempered that in section 62, the inhabitants of the earth. So I just wanted to make sure that we at least mention that on the podcast so you can kind of see that and temper that a little bit. Now, before we leave section 60, let me draw attention to one sentence and how it kind of fits in what we've just been through. They went into Jackson County and the Lord told them, this is the place all of this one, these wonderful things are going to happen. And they saw just ordinary land. And many of them walked away saying, how in the world is this ever going to become Zion? And several people reacted to our podcast and reached out to me you know, in my comments that you can't build a celestial city unless you're a celestial people, people reached out to me saying, Bryce, how is that ever going to happen? How are we ever going to be that people? We can't be celestial. And we kind of have that same reaction like the people who went to Jackson County and saw nothing but ordinary land. How in the world are we ever going to bring this to pass? And sometimes we even look at our own families or my assignment to parent and be a father. How in the world can I possibly do that? And we forget this line from section 60, verse 7. The Lord says, Lift up your holy hands upon them, for I am able to make you holy. Don't read so quickly this week that you don't Take a moment and pause and ponder that phrase. I am able to make you holy. No matter how ordinary the land may have been of Jackson County, with his help, we can turn it into a Zion. No matter how ordinary you as a human being may be, no matter your frailties and your faults, no matter the mistakes you've made in the past, Jesus is able to make each and every one of us holy, worthy, celestial, capable of not only dwelling in that land, but flourishing in it. We can't do it on our own, but we can do it with his help. We can become the people he is expecting us to be. We can be a Zion people only as we get him into our lives. I am able to make you holy, should resonate in every one of us. No matter what we are, we need to remember that Jesus has said, I am able to make you holy. I love 2 Nephi 27, 20. Just a short phrase where the Lord says, I'm able to do my own work. Now, we're back to contraries. This is his work. And so what does he do? Let's us try and do it. Yeah, he hands you the baton and says, Bryce, get to work. And it's a contrary. And I think sometimes Christians outside of our faith tradition accuse us of thinking we can work our way to heaven. And we emphasize like scriptures that say things like, work out your own salvation, keep the commandments. And we're to do all that. But it's God moving in us. So I think that's beautiful. Now, I don't know certainly how it's going to happen, but I'm just going to throw this out as a possibility. When you think about the United States of America, certainly right now, we're not necessarily united. We're 50 states. We're doing our best. We're trying to be united. But if you think about historically, when were we united? And I think during World War II, the entire nation was on board. We rationed gas. 
I, I, I wasn't alive, so I don't know all the things. These are just things I read historically, but we did all kinds of things that we were united. And as I read the stuff that's in the scriptures about the second coming, it seems like it's going to be that kind of circumstance where because of necessity, we are going to unite because of the circumstances. And I live in a town called Harriman. And a few years ago, there was a fire that kind of came over the mountain and the whole city banded together. People were praying. I remember the fire coming down the mountain and I was looking at the, at the mountain on fire and my family got in our living room and we said a prayer because we were packing up our car. We were driving away. We were being, everyone was being kicked out. And I said to my wife, this may be the last time we see our house. And we all drove off and I was with my family in my car and we just had pictures and a few things. And as we were driving to the in-laws, I thought, if my house burns down, it's okay. I've got my kids with me. Yeah. What is there anything Everything else? Everything that's important is in this vehicle. That's Zion. And I think, Bryce, I don't know. I don't want to make predictions, but I would not be surprised that when Zion gets built, it's that kind of circumstance. Just a thought. I love it. The other thing I want to point out before we leave section 60 is verse 2 and 3. With some I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given them because of the fear of men. Woe well unto them, for my anger is kindled against them. It shall come to pass that if they are not more faithful unto me, it shall be taken away even that which they have. God gives us gifts to do his work. But if we are so fearful of what men might think or do, we may lose those gifts from God. As a reminder, section 62, those who, in spite of their fears, in spite of what men might do, who bore their testimony, you've got to tie this verse into that. Nevertheless, this is verse 3 of section 62. Nevertheless, they are blessed for the testimony which they have borne is recorded in heaven for the angels to look upon. And they rejoice over you and your sins are forgiven you. So you can do God's work a little bit timid and afraid because men may not accept you. Or you can do God's work knowing that the angels and God himself are witnessing what you're doing and will reward you. I love how he goes on back in section 60 to say in the end of verse 4, All men shall know that it is that bespeaketh the power of God. The world may mock today. The world may make fun of goodness and righteousness and the things of God. But someday all men will know what it is that bespeaketh the power of God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So I want to be one that was never afraid to speak. Yep. Excellent. So section 61, this is coming from a vision that W.W. Phelps has. And in the section heading, it's called a daylight vision where he sees the destroyer riding in power upon the face of the waters. And so that's this revelation, at least verses 13 through 22 deal with those. And I think this is one of the more puzzling sections as far as the, all the Doctrine and Covenants. It, it can be kind of puzzling. What is going on with the destroyer upon the waters? Now, the first thing I want to say is verse 18. I'm just going to read verse 18. I think this really will help. Now, I give you a commandment 
that what I say unto one, I say unto all, that you shall forewarn your brethren concerning these waters, that they come not and journeying upon them. And then it says, lest their faith fail and they are caught in snares. Now, I think the last part of verse 18 is actually a pun. Being caught in snares is what happened to them. They were caught in these logs and in these trees in the Missouri River. And so right from the beginning, these waters could be specifically the Lord warning them about the dangers of the Missouri River and the Sawyers. And that goes all the way back in verse 4. He says, there are many dangers upon the waters, and more especially hereafter. For I, the Lord, have decreed in mine anger many destructions upon the waters, yea, and especially upon these waters. So he seems to be speaking about the waters around Jackson County and Zion. And I would even submit that a lot of what we're about to talk about could be symbolic in that as I travel to Zion in my life, there are waters that surround Zion that are dangerous. So there's a lot going on, and we need to see it from a lot of different angles. But I think it's significant, Mike, to point out how often he says these waters, the waters around Zion. Yeah. Now, there's this reference to John. If you look in verse 14, by the mouth of my servant John, I curse the waters. And the beginning of verse 14 says, I, the Lord, in the beginning, bless the waters. And it seems to be this hinting to Genesis 3. And also Genesis 1. I mean, if you read Genesis 1, it talks about the waters bringing forth life abundantly. And then you get into some of the, after the creation account, and Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, there's this curse that comes upon the land. It will have thorns and and noxious weeds, and then they have to work by the sweat of their face. But then this idea with John is alluding to Revelation 8. Specifically, you know, verses 8 through 11, but I would read the entire chapter. All of Revelation 8 is this text from John the Beloved in his Apocalypse. We talked about some of this when we, when we did Revelation, but in essence, he sees that the waters become wormwood, and it's always like a third part, a third part of this and a third part of that. In other words, it's not total, but it's kind of this, this curse over the waters. And one commentator said, there is no key given in Scripture as to the details concerning the fulfillment of this destruction. Clearly, the devastating events are in the future. So that's one way to look at it. Now, what do we do with the destroyer? Well, we don't know. It's not clear if this destroyer is an angel of God or if it's the devil. And there's some different comments out there. One of them comes from Joseph Fielding Smith. And this is what he said. He said, these brethren while encamped at McElwain's Bend on the Missouri beheld the power of the destroyer as he rode upon the storm. One of that number saw him in all his fearful majesty and the Lord revealed to the entire group something of the power of this evil personage. It may seem strange to us, but it is the fact that Satan exercises dominion and has some control over the elements. Paul even speaks of Satan as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. The Lord revealed to these brethren some of the power of the adversary of mankind and how he rides upon the storm as a means of affording them protection. They were commanded to use judgment as they traveled upon the waters. And so, and there's more. Joseph Fielding Smith continues, but from his perspective, he sees the destroyer as the adversary. So there's some modern commentary on what's going on. Is it the adversary? 
Is it the angel of the Lord destroying? I, I think if I had a pick, I'm going to go with Joseph Fielding Smith saying that they see something to do with the adversary, uh, especially when you package this with Heber C. Kimball's experience in England, where he sees the forces of darkness fighting against the missionaries. And if you talk to enough missionaries, eventually you'll meet a missionary who says, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've experienced that. I know that that's real. And so that's one perspective. And I want to take that and just kind of give you a modern application, something for our personal lives. And just to remind you that there are waters surrounding Zion, and this destroyer is riding upon the waters. Now, let me remind you, back in section 45, he said, it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High. And the glory of the Lord shall be there and the terror of the Lord shall be there also. And now we have an image of a destroyer on the waters that lead to Zion. Now, do you see the symbolism? That Zion is being protected. Zion is being kept safe. And that if your, tr- if your intent is to destroy Zion, those waters will destroy you. But if your intent is to live in Zion, go back and read carefully section 61. He said back in verse 6, He that is faithful among you shall not perish by the waters. He says in verse 16, It shall be said in days to come that none is able to go up to the land of Zion upon the waters, but he that is upright in heart. So this may have been a very literal thing like Mike described, but it may be a very symbolic thing to remind them that Zion is being guarded. Zion is being protected. And anyone who seeks to do harm will have to face that destroyer on those waters. Come to Zion, and you will be safe and protected. You will make it to Zion safely. But those who are trying to destroy Zion are going to have to face that destroyer on those waters. So I read section 61 as a reminder that everything's going to be okay. If you make it to Zion, we will be surrounded and protected. Kind of like those pillars of fire that came down and surrounded Nephi and Lehi and kept them safe from the enemy. But once the enemy actually joins Nephi and Lehi, the fire extends around them and lets them inside. Now they're inside. So whereas I was headed to Zion to do destruction, I couldn't cross the rivers. But once my heart changed and I want to join Zion, I am brought safely across the rivers. Do you see that beautiful symbolism that Zion is being kept safe And depending on your intentions, you will either have to face that destroyer and be destroyed by it, or you'll be welcomed through the rivers and get to Zion safely. That actually perfectly leads into where we're going with this. So that's excellent, Bryce. We're quoting John in verse 14, which is quoting Revelation 8. So there's layers. You got to go to Revelation 8. You got to read John. Well, then you read John and you're like, well, where's John getting his ideas? And John's heavily drenched in imagery from Isaiah. And Isaiah's quoting imagery from Ugarit in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, they're talking about stuff that the Egyptians are doing, all of this really, really old stuff. And so here it is. From my reading of how the ancients viewed the cosmic sea and the watery abyss associated with chaos, these waters are a border. And the word is going to be Tihon. 
and Tihom or this watery abyss, it's all couched in this imagery from John's apocalypse. I would suggest that you read this revelation through the lens of John and Isaiah. And it's all talking about this idea of the firmament. And so, and and it's easier to see this if you look at it. So you go to the show notes, you'll see a picture of the earth and the underworld and the pillars of heaven. If you do a careful reading of Genesis, which is this really old text, it talks about the gods come down and they make this sacred space. It's almost like there's this ball of chaotic tohu and bohu, this, uh, this unorganized matter, but it's this cosmic sea. And the gods brood over it like a hen and they breathe into it. They, they blow into it and they make this bubble where man can live and it's surrounded by water. And that's why if you do a careful reading of Genesis, it talks about waters above the firmament and beneath the firmament. And the word firmament is an interesting word. It's rakia. And what that is, is that is a, like a shield. It's like this beaten out thin layer, this thin substance that shields the chaos waters above the firmament from the waters beneath it. This stuff's all over the place in the Old Testament, but John's using it and the writers of the gospels are packaging these ideas too. There's this idea that there's this liminal space in this cosmology, this space where you're not in either circumstance. So above the waters of the firmament is the heavens. Beneath the waters of the firmament is where men live. And this liminal space is where you cross over. So think about it like this. When Nephi builds the boat and they, in, in the family, the brothers help, and they cross over the waters and they come to the Americas, that liminal space of crossing is part of their journey. And it's where they're going to a new place. The same thing with the children of Israel. When they cross the Red Sea, they're going through, it's almost like through a corridor. They're going through this liminal space and into another state or status. And so these waters kind of represent that, but they represent chaos. Now, the waters also can represent holiness and cleansing, and they can be life-giving. And so there's this whole other context where the waters represent life and the well, and, and they even represent creation and marriage. But in this context today, we're talking about the chaos. And so the word for sea even comes out of this. So the Hebrew word for sea is yam, and like the yams you eat during Thanksgiving. Yam was an ancient Near Eastern god of chaos. We give you in the show notes a whole bunch of stuff on Yam. Yam, like I said, is this god of chaos, and he's coming out of this religion in Canaan that Isaiah and John and all the ancients were really familiar with. Now, tell me if this sounds familiar. We have a council of gods in the pre-earth life. We have the main god, his name is El, and we have Yam, who's kind of the god of the sea or chaos, and we have another god called Mot. And we have another God called Baal and Baal is going to be the son of El and Baal is essentially has to take care of Yam because he's causing all this chaos and he has to kill him. And so he kills Yam, but in the contest that he has with them, Mot, which is the word for death, Mot kills Baal and then Baal is resurrected. And then they build a house for Baal on Mount Zaphon. And then it's this whole, what's called the Baal cycle, this whole celebration where they celebrate Baal's victory over Yam, chaos, and Mot, death. And they build a house for him. 
By the way, that's the Hebrew word for husband. And they celebrate his victory over chaos and death. Now, you don't have to use too much of an imagination to see the parallels between Baal, Mot, Yam, and El, and Jehovah, El Elyon, or Elohim, however you want to call the Father, and the adversary. And how did Jesus conquer chaos and death? Well, what's another word for chaos, right? It's sin. And so essentially, we have some of these ideas in the Old Testament, and Isaiah is using tons of this stuff. And so from this perspective, if we look at these waters, there's these boundaries, and they're around this sacred space. Zion is this sacred space. And so if you look at this picture that we give you in the show notes, you can kind of see the earth surrounded by these waters. And by the way, the ancients believed that there was water under the earth, and they believed there was water above the firmament. And if you asked them and said, I don't think there's waters above the firmament, there's actually planets and stars, they would say, well, yeah, there is. Because if you look up, it's blue. And occasionally the little apertures of the rakia, the little apertures they called windows would open and the windows of heaven would pour down water. And by the way, this isn't just the Hebrews. This is the Egyptians. Everybody's looking at the cosmos this way. And so this is called ancient Near Eastern cosmology, this idea that watery chaos is all around us. And in this space, in the Genesis account, it's Eden. And in Isaiah's writings, it's Israel. All through the Old Testament, Israel is this place where we have God with us, but outside of it is chaos. And so what do the gospel writers do with Jesus? Well, they show Jesus walking on the chaos. He is kind of like Baal, where he conquers Yam. And so it's a it's a very interesting. And then you get into Nephi. If you look in 1 Nephi 13 and 1 Nephi 14, I'm just going to read 1 Nephi 14, 11. It came to pass that I, and this is Nephi talking, that I looked and beheld the whore of all the earth, and she sat upon many waters, and she had dominion over all the earth among all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. And it came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few because of the wickedness and abominations of the whore who sat upon the many waters. Let me throw in one verse right there, yeah, Mike, yeah. just to confirm this. From Revelation 17, verse 15, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. There it is. I just want to show the link between Nephi and, again, John, the book of Revelation. But back to what you were yeah, about to say, yeah. Mike. Nephi knows this stuff. He knows the Ugaritic literature. You know, he he's not quoting Yam, but he I think he knows about this stuff because this is the world of the Canaanites. These are the legends that they would tell around the fire when they were with their families. And Nephi sees these images, and so does John. And to me, this also gives us a pass on those tricky verses in 60, 61, 62 about the congregations of the wicked, because in antiquity, the waters were dangerous. It was, once again, this liminal space. You didn't want to be there. You wanted to cross over it. You wanted to get through it. And so that, to me, can be a representation of mortality. We are in liminal space. We came from heaven. We're going to heaven. We are the Israelites crossing through the chaos waters. Everything is the water. There's no safe space without the Lamb of God. There is no safe space without the light of Christ. Now, all of this stuff has prepared us 
to just wrap our brains around this quote. This is by one of my favorite Bible scholars ever. Her name is Margaret Barker. And she just pulls on all these threads. She's an expert on temple theology. She studies ancient Christianity. And she reads all these texts outside the Bible because to her, the Christian gospel writers were first temple Jews. They understood the temple and everything she sees is temple. And I read her stuff and I'm like, this is just beautiful. And she's quoting some ancient people that lived during the time of the temple. And this is what she says. Speaking of the temple, the courtyard was furnished with bronzes. Two bronze pillars stood in the front of the entrance of the temple. And some have suggested that they represented sacred trees. There are stylized trees standing on either side of the entrance on several models of shrines, which have been unearthed. To the southeast of the temple, there was a bronze sea. This was an enormous bronze basin of water. It's actually called the Bronze Sea in the Old Testament, and they're using the word yam. They're using that chaos god again. It was supported on 12 oxen in four groups of three, and it was for the priest to wash in. In later interpretation, as we see, the whole of the courtyard of the temple represented the sea. The entire temple complex was the created order, with the temple as the created and ordered firmament in the midst of a hostile sea. So let me just try to translate what she's talking about. The courtyard that the temple stood on represented the sea and the temple represented Eden. And you got to get in there to be safe. And then she quotes what's called the Babylonian Talmud. So this is what this is, is ancient Jewish authors and poets and rabbis would write down their interpretation of their religion, and they would kind of fill in all the blank spaces of the Bible. And it remembers, this text remembers that there were white and blue marble in the courtyard and on the temple walls that looked like the waves of the sea. So it represented the sea, which then brings us to Psalm 93 and Psalm 29. If you go to Psalm 29, verse 10, it says that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. He sits enthroned forever. Now there's more. Go to the show notes and check them out. We quote another great scholar named Raphael Patai, and he pulls on these threads. And he quotes other Jewish texts that talk about this, the white and blue marble representing the sea. I think we're back to what Bryce is saying. We have this holy space that God has designated, and it's surrounded by water, and it's pretty tricky getting to it. And I love how he packaged section 45, where it says, hey, the terror of the Lord's going to be there as well. Now, I certainly don't believe there's a dome over the earth and water above the dome, but everybody in antiquity did. And so it's not a problem for me to read this in Genesis as God is speaking to prophets anciently and they're trying to understand the created order. He's going to speak to them after the manner of their language so that they can understand. And yet we see some of this kind of language in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then they they layer it with John in Revelation 8. So I really like this. It's not the main point of the sections. I think the main point is what we did in the beginning with Revelation, and sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. But I've always found section 61 to be fascinating because I think we read it wrong, and we think that it's about missionaries not swimming. So why is it that missionaries don't swim? Is it because Satan has power of the waters? No. It's because swimming is not a conducive environment for missionary work. So missionaries need to stay away from that environment. 
But that creates a lot of unnecessary fear that, oh, well, my children can't go to the local pool because Satan has power over the waters. And I really like to see this symbolically. Remember, Nicodemus made the mistake of assuming literal when Jesus meant figurative. A man needs to be born again. He assumed literal. Jesus meant figurative. The woman at the well, whoso drinketh of this water shall thirst again. She assumed literal when Jesus meant symbolic. So be careful as you read section 61 this week that we don't just jump and assume the literal without seeing some of the symbolic and the imagery that Mike's been talking about. Bryce, I just got to add one more thing. In the show notes, we reference a text called The Life of Adam and Eve. And there's all these ascension texts, uh, apocalyptic texts floating around about the time of Jesus. And in the life of Adam and Eve, there's this description of Adam being led to heavenly paradise. And to get there, they have to cross the waters that surround it. He's got to get across the waters. And so the angel freezes the waters so they can walk over them and get into paradise. And it's surrounded by waters. And then I think about, sorry, I can't help myself. You think about how some of the saints crossed over the Mississippi and it was frozen. I mean, if that story, the crossing was written in the Bronze Age, Yahweh would be breathing his breath so that they could walk across the sea on dry ground. When we read these texts, we have to realize these are Bronze Age prophets and poets, and they're showing God's connection in their life. Anyway, for those of you that like geeking out, you're probably like loving it. Some of you guys are like, skip, skip, let's skip this stuff. But anyway, I love it. And that leads us to section 62, the last of our Come Follow Me sections this week. Again, we're back to that idea of it mattereth not. So if you want to ride upon horses or upon mules, it mattereth not. But he does throw in in verse 7, make sure whatever you do, you do with a thankful heart. And that's now come up several times, especially when you go back to section 65, Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things, and in nothing does the Lord, in nothing does man offend God save those who confess not his hand in all things. So, whatever you do, however the Lord guides you, however you choose to get to Zion, and sometimes the Lord will tell you what to do, and sometimes he'll say, you got to figure it out on your own. But however you get to Zion, get there with a thankful heart in all things, bearing testimony along the way. Because, verse 3, I remind you, the testimony which ye have borne is recorded in heaven for the angels to look upon, and they rejoice over you, and your sins are forgiven you. Come to Zion, whatever you need to do in your life to cross the waters and get to Zion, get there. It may seem daunting, it may seem impossible to you, but I remind you of section 60, verse 7 where the Lord says, I am able to make you holy. The Lord is going to help us become the people that can build Zion. May we be that kind of people and get there. Next time we will be in section 63. Have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.